Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I'm really excited. We have a, a very exciting and slightly different than normal show for you today because I have with me one of my mentors and friends, someone who's been uh, both a teacher and mentor to me since uh, the time I was a first-year medical student, and we're going to uh, go over some really interesting things that he's really an expert on. So this is Professor Dan Lowenstein. He's a professor of neurology and the executive vice chancellor and provost at the University of California, San Francisco School of Medicine. Dan, thanks so much for coming on the show. Jed, it's a pleasure. So the way this came about, uh, so as I said, I've known you, Dan. I've known known you since I was a first-year medical student and took your course, Brain, Mind, and Behavior, uh, a course after which pretty much every medical student at UCSF decides they want to be a neurologist. Uh, and we may talk about that a little more because um, you have an interesting take and I think a really uh, profound take on mentorship that we'll talk about. But, uh, of course, since then, I did not become a neurologist, but have remained uh, close with you and, and really appreciate your friendship and mentorship. So the way this came about is that I went to the Society for Education and Anesthesia meeting uh, right before ASA in the fall, and when I was going to be giving some talks, and so I got an email that included all of the speakers, and lo and behold, Dan, I saw your name on there and uh, couldn't figure out exactly uh, how you had ended up on there, but was excited to learn that you were going to be giving a talk. And it was going to be a talk talking about kind of some of the keys to success in terms of having a, an, a balanced life, having some mindfulness in life, um, and maintaining things that are really important as you go through a career. And I think it applies to any specialty. Does that sum up uh, kind of the, the idea? Yeah, you've got it. That's right. And so uh, what I loved is, uh, among many things, is that you kind of went through and divided this up, uh, at least the bulk of the talk, in eight aphorisms that you had chosen, each with a, a lesson of its own. And so what I'd love to do is go through those one by one and have you tell us a little bit about why you chose that and what lessons you think it gives for people uh, as they go through their careers in medicine. Sounds good. Let's, right. let's do it. Let's do it. So the first one was, a life of service demands working extremely hard but does not require suffering. And each of them, I should say, is, is in a kind of a two-part, um, uh, in two parts like that, a, a beginning and a follow-up. So that's the, the two. A life of service demands working extremely hard, but does not require suffering. So tell our listeners uh, why you chose that and what that means. Right. So one of the ways that I, I, I set up that concept is by referring to this quote from uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson. Um, which which goes like the following. Um, he wrote, uh, quote, to leave the world a bit better, whether by a healthy child, a garden patch, or a redeemed social condition, to know even one life has breathed easier because you have lived, this is to have succeeded. And I, and I like showing that uh, and sharing that with uh, my colleagues and, and, and students and, and, and mentees and, and many others, because, you know, you first read something like that and, and there's a, there's a pleasantness to it. It's, it's appealing. It feels good right. to think about what it means to have succeeded. But I think that most of us honestly wouldn't necessarily be satisfied by some of the things that Emerson suggest, suggests would, would, would deem a successful life. And so that then gets to, what it is that we're taking on in the uh, the profession that we're involved in as as physicians as healers, and to recognize that we, in a sense, have taken on a calling, to, and that is to serve people who are uh, suffering from 
from disease. And um, there's no other way of describing it. That's really, really hard work. Um, and I remember so well when I was a first-year medical student like you a number of years ago, and um, my, uh, my girlfriend in medical school at the time, um, Milo, who turned out to be my wife, uh, and I were studying away, you know, just working as hard as we could possibly could to make it through this. And, and we both were just overwhelmed with how difficult it was. And we finally just out of desperation decided to turn to one of our mentors, uh, an anatomy professor named Dan Goodenough. And we went to his office and we sort of were just letting it all out about how difficult and why this was impossible and wondering what the heck was going on. And he at, at some point in the conversation, looked at the two of us and said, you know, just a second, you know, Milo and Dan, uh, you know, you're, you're in medical school. Why did you ever possibly think that this was going to be anything but incredibly hard? Right. <laughs> and, and it was, you know, I still, obviously, I still remember that moment because it was like some clouds parted and, and I was able, we were able to see that, you know, this is really, really hard work. <laughs> And it's and it and it just comes with the territory. It's sort of like saying, you know, I think I'm going to run a marathon. I'm going to start training, and then um, in the in the midst of it all, you say to yourself, "This is really hard." Well, what did, what did you ever think it was right. going to be, right? And so, so it, I, I think recognizing that this life of of service is going to be hard, but it doesn't mean that we have to suffer in the process of working hard. And there's a big difference between hard work. And suffering, and everyone everyone should be able to recognize that. And what's the antidote to the suffering? I I think it's having an understanding of why it is that we're doing the work that we're doing. And you know, you know this. Uh, um, I, when I decided to go into medicine, it's a long story, but uh, the the result of the process that I went through left me with an absolute certainty, absolute certainty that this is what I've wanted to do with my life. And, um, and, and I've never doubted that since. Uh, and I, 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 I don't know how many people feel that way about their work in medicine, but I can tell you that it's because of that certainty as to this is what I want to be doing that the work doesn't cause suffering. I mean, it's just part of what I want to do uh, as a healer um, in, in my life. Yeah, I think that's really important. And the other thing I, I think plays a big role here, Dan, and I, I wonder if you agree, is you know that I think acknowledging it may have been helpful for you and Milo not only to get to kind of get it off your chest and say, hey, this is really hard, but to hear somebody validate that and say, yeah, it is, and not just for you, right? This is a hard thing, and therefore there's nothing wrong with you that you're finding it hard. It's actually hard for everybody. It makes you feel like you're not alone. It makes you feel like this is how it's supposed to be, and then maybe you you have a little less self-doubt. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, when I talk to first or second year medical students who are right at the beginning of this long journey, um, I, I tell them, you know, medical, <laughs> medical school's hard. Um, and for any of them who haven't yet felt that, like they're skimming through their studies and it's not as hard as they thought it was going to be, it's going to catch up with them at some point. Yeah. Right. So whether it's one of those clerkships in third year or what was for me the hardest period of my professional career was a couple of months during internship um, uh, or when it's in the midst of your residency or as you become a faculty member or you're, you know, you're 
you feel like you're going nuts because your clinical load is overwhelming as a uh, you know full-fledged physician, um, it's going to happen somewhere along the way. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. And it's important to realize that when you're feeling that way, you're not you're not the only one, that this is a, a common thing. There are colleagues out there who have felt the same way or are feeling the same way right now. And I think that gives some people some sense of, of normalcy and of, of not being, you know, of kind of fighting that imposter syndrome a little bit. Totally agree. Great. All right. So let's move on to number two, which is respect your mentors, but do not worship them. So uh, we touched on this, but tell me what it means to you. Yes. So uh, everyone will agree that we haven't been able to travel this path without the help of so many people, uh, family members, other loved ones, um, you know, uh, friends along the way, uh, the teachers who uh, brought us into the world of medicine and are continuing to teach us, you know, at every level. Uh, And I think most of us can identify uh, one or more people who were really key in providing the guidance, whether it was uh, directly um, through conversation and getting to know one another really well and and uh, to the point where they're providing advice that's really applicable, or indirectly, just through role modeling. Um, and, and so uh, th- there's tremendous value in having uh, that uplifting force as we travel the path. However, I think it's really important to recognize that they, uh, they're not gods. And so the people that we, especially the people that we come to adore and, um, and feel, I I think the warning sign is when someone says to themselves, I just want to be exactly like her. You know, I, if, if for me to be successful, I want to, I want to be as much like my mentor, him or her, as I possibly can, and 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 I I'd be concerned about that because, uh, and the most of the time, the vast majority of the time, we don't know the full life story of the people that we consider our mentors. And as as every, everyone who's listening to this podcast knows, life is a heck of a lot more complicated than we probably thought it was um, earlier, and. And so this is true of our mentors, obviously, as well. And so there are aspects of their life, which actually we might not want to emulate, but but we are um, we filter that, um, and we don't necessarily see it. Um, so I would, I, I just think that we should uh, take what we can from our mentors, um, but not uh, not want to follow them as a sort of a, a, a disciple of a god. Yeah, and I, you know, <clears throat> I think a hugely important. I I still remember uh, one of the things uh, amongst many, but one of the things that really sticks out is uh, when I was talking to you once as a medical student, and I remember you said to me, and I'm sure you say to many students, you know, uh, you will find many uh, people who will make you feel pressure to go into their specialty, right? They will, they will, um, whether overtly or not, they will. You will feel like you should say when they ask you what you want to do you should list their specialty as at the top of your list. 
But you said to me that you thought that was crazy, that why in the world would you want me to be a neurologist just because you're a neurologist, that that just doesn't make any sense, that you want me to do whatever would be the specialty that would be best for me, and it has not, it doesn't matter at all if it happens to be the one that you have chosen that's best for you. And that really stuck with me. I say the exact same thing to our students here because mm-hmm. I think that as a mentor, you want to make that explicit for your learners and your students and your mentees that you know, you're here to provide them whatever guidance you can and help you can, but that they don't, they should feel absolutely no obligation to be like you in terms of specialty choice or any other way that doesn't fit. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're so right. I mean, I've had, I, it is true. I've had that conversation with hundreds and hundreds of medical students, just to, just as you just put it. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, other than you, which is the one person I've come across in my whole career who, absolutely certain you should have gone in neurology and you're, <laughs> tremendous, you're a tremendous disappointment to me. No, <laughs> no, you, uh, no, you're, you're exactly right. In fact, I, I may have said it back then. Uh, to me, one of the greatest comedies of being in the world of medical, of medical school is to hear my colleagues try to talk about why a student should go into their discipline. It's, it's just so funny. Because why in the world would I possibly know what a medical student should go into? It's sort of like it's sort of like you telling me, Dan, you know, I, 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 I get that you seem to like ballet so much, but you know, symphony is so much better. Right. <laughs> like you could try that on me for a million years. There's no way. I, I, I've tried both. And I love ballet, and I don't really like symphony. Whatever, right. you know? Right. <laughs> so. right. That's exactly right. And it is, you know, I always imagine this, and I know I did it, where, you know, you go as a student, as a third-year medical student, really, whatever specialty you're rotating on, you say, when someone asks you, what are you thinking about going to, you say, well, you know, I'm really interested in whatever it is you're on, right? And it's pretty, <laughs> yeah. you know, I mean, it is just this very comical, and it's because you feel like if you don't, you're putting your grade in jeopardy, or they're, you know, that they, they won't feel as strongly about you. So... Uh, to the extent we can get away from that, I think that's great. And, and in general, as you say, we should really be, uh, you know, feeling support from our mentors, but not feeling like we need to uh, either need to or necessarily should emulate everything about them. Yes, agree. So the next one is remember your roots, love your students. Tell me about that one. Yeah. So this one relates to the uh, the, the aspect of our job, which which. Uh, involves teaching others and uh, being in the world of medicine, certainly being in the world of academic medicine essentially requires uh, uh, that we do whatever we can to facilitate the, the, the career development of, of our, of our residents and, and, and fellows and students. And uh, people have asked me for many years, you know, like what is your, approach to being a an effective teacher and and I, you know you'll you'll have to verify this or comment on this with your listeners but I you know uh, I I've, I've been considered a, a reasonably successful teacher throughout my career yeah absolutely um, and you know people ask you know what's your secret and I, I have to say that the, the secret is that the starting point in my thinking about my relationship with my students and and that's whether they're it's at the bedside um, with the, with the residents uh, uh, in the hospital or clinic or in front of a you know 
150 medical students. Um, the starting point for me is I feel a, a, a real sense of love for them. I, 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 I admire them uh, from the outset. Uh, I am inspired by them. Um, I've, I'm moved by what, what it is that they uh, bring from their experience and in the way they uh, can inform us in the work that we do. Um, I, uh, I, I'm, I'm amazed at how hard uh, they work, although, of course, that shouldn't be a surprise. We all do. But for all those reasons, I just really um, I feel a sense of, of connection uh, and love for, for my students. And for, with that foundation, everything else seems to follow. So because be, because of that connection, um, uh, I want to do as well as I possibly can, no matter what the venue is in teaching. I want to be as prepared as I possibly can. I want to respect them as colleagues uh, on this path. Um, and I want to help them when they're, you know, struggling. Um, and I, I, I certainly don't want to try to harm or hurt them. And I, one of the reasons, one of the reasons that I bring this up as an aphorism is it's pretty clear that obviously not everybody feels this way towards their students and, and that's okay. You know, people have their own approaches, but I am regularly amazed by the, you know, the stories that I hear the, the, the continual stories that I hear from especially medical students and residents um, about their encounters with teachers, often faculty, who um, are not particularly kind and seem to completely forget what it was like to be a medical student. Yeah. And and I, I, that's one is it's incapable, I, I think, of having a sense of, of love or care for. Um, your trainees, if you can't put yourself in their place, of course that's that's what empathy is, right? And I know you you have this in spades, Jed. You you're like me. Our our medical student experience repressor gene never turned on, right? And so you know you and I and many others, you know, when we're with a group of medical students, we can remember what it was like to be standing there on rounds with the attending. And, and how anxious and frightened and uncertain uh, and and unspiraling it can be, um, and 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 with that uh, understanding of where they are at, we're able to set the stage for a learning experience that I think is just going to be much much more more productive and valuable and exciting to the students. Yeah. I completely agree. And as you said, I think it applies very much to residency too. People tend to get out of residency and some people's residency repressor gene turns on, right? They forget what it was like or they think, well, they get some idea that it's it's much easier now than it was for them and therefore uh, there should be, you know, we, residents should just be constantly grateful for for uh, everything that they have and, and you know, so sort of be able to compare to the past and think, well, it's easier now, therefore I have it great. And I think the problem is that can obscure the fact that, though, sure, the hours are shorter now than they once were, residency is still hard. And if we yeah. forget that, yeah. if we forget that, then I think we, we, don't, we do our residents a disservice. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So another perspective that I just want to bring into this issue of you know, working with our, with our trainees is to uh, take note of 
of, of that feeling that you have as a teacher of being knowledgeable and being the expert in the room. And I just want our listeners to ch- sort of check themselves when this feeling comes along, because it's really easy to think that the reason that we are so capable and expert is because we have, you know, better memories than we are than we thought, and that we're relying on all the information that we've learned from medical uh, school on. And, um, you know, in fact, that's not really true for the vast majority of us mortals anyway. Right. Um, the real reason that we're capable and expert is because of experience. And, and, I, and I think it's important to put that out on the table with our trainees to remind them that, uh, you know, the expertise that you're bringing forward is in large part informed by the experience you've had with many, many patients over, you know, many years. Right. Yeah, I absolutely agree. The the it's so easy to think, my goodness, I knew that back then, but we don't know what we knew back then. Right? We only know what we know now. Yeah. Yeah. Agree. Yeah. And you know, the other thing I always think is funny is, you know, if, if somebody comes to me and says, you know, I can't believe this resident didn't know this, I say, well, that has nothing to do with that. That's us. We didn't teach it to them, right? I mean, that's <laughs> we, so all that means is we need to teach them. Um, yeah. So I think that we have to flip that perspective a little bit. All right, great. So let's go to the fourth aphorism here. Creativity is the currency of academia as long as it sees the light of day. So say a few words about that. Yeah, this, this, one's a, this one is a pretty straightforward one in the world of academia. And it's just to, it's just to make the point that if, if you're heading towards an academic career and you want to try to achieve some sense of, of, of balance and security in the work that you're doing in this arena, uh, the, the, the currency of academia is creativity. The, the reason why we have universities, there are two, there are two reasons. Uh, one is to train the next generation, and the other is to generate new knowledge. And society is depending on us to take a look at the world around us, in our case, the world of medicine, and to recognize the things where we fall short. And there is essentially an infinite list at the moment of those things, and then to do something about it, to ask the question, like, why is it that our patients um, are uh, going through the experiences that they're having? Why is it that our treatments um, uh, sometimes fail? Why is it that, that our therapies have side effects, and and on and on and on. And so it is that creative enterprise that is going to allow us to change the world. And um, if we don't engage in this part of our work, then the care that we give to our patients a year from now, five years from now, 20 years from now, is going to be exactly the same as it is today. And and speaking for our patients, that's completely unacceptable. So Uh, And it doesn't matter what avenue that you take within academia, whether you're a uh, clinician educator or a uh, clinical trialist or, you know, someone who's basically spending his or her time mostly in the lab, the university is going to still look at at your creative contributions as a, a significant aspect of assessing the value that you bring to the university. So... Oh, uh, and, and none of us would be where we are right now in, in, the, in the training path um, and our careers if we didn't have uh, some level of creativity. So that's important. However, it only becomes important if it actually gets to see the light of day, meaning that other people get to know about your creativity. 
Right. And that comes in many forms, but the, you know, the primary form continues to be publishing. In other words, writing up what it is that we've come up with so that we can see whether it's going to withstand the test of time. And now that could be in the form of a manuscript. And, you know, in the talk that I give, I, I show a, an example of a fairly famous publication, and that was Watson and Crick's description of the structure of DNA right. in 1953 in the journal Nature. Um, but, uh, you know, if they, had, if they were lived out the rest of their lives just walking around complimenting one another, congratulating one another for how cool a discovery they've made and no one else really knew about it, it would be worth absolutely zero. Right. So, so I think it's important for folks in the world of academia to, to, to reach into their creative abilities as much as they can, come up with new ideas, and then share them with others to see uh, just how valuable it will be to the world overall. Yeah, absolutely. All right, next one is be extremely serious about your work, but not about yourself. Yeah, so um, our work is serious. There's there's no other way of putting it, right? We're, we are literally dealing with life and death, you know, virtually every day in our work. So that's serious, and I, and I don't think we should um, uh, pull back from um, how careful uh, we need to be in our work. But there is room for lightheartedness, and I think there's a need for lightheartedness because, as we've said, you know, this is such hard work and it's so serious that, um, at least for me, and I think you share this as well, um, I, I, I need to have something that offsets the, the, the heaviness of, of the day-to-day work. And I find that, that, that humor and lightheartedness is a really, really useful antidote. Um, one thing about this, I think people talk about it a lot, is you know what about kind of that dark or black humor that w- we we tend to use, especially during residency when things are particularly hard. Yeah. Um, I think that there's a place for uh, comedy and joking and and just plain fun. However, I I really don't think that there's ever a justification for directing that that humor towards our patients or using our patients as a source of that humor. I just find that um, disrespectful and um, uh, unethical, actually. Yeah. Um, I'm sure we could debate that, but that's the way I feel. Um, the, the good thing is I found that we actually don't need to use our patients as the target of our humor. We just need to use one another. Yeah. And, and there's plenty of material to work with. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And the I would add that you know, at least from my perspective, I, I with with residents, and I would say uh, we shouldn't be using our uh, trainees or students, right? When we're in a faculty position, uh, and we shouldn't be using them as a source of humor either, um, because they're in in a different role than a patient. But similarly, there is a hierarchy there, and we don't want to put uh, put them in that position. So I think what where you've said. Um, about ourselves, right? So I can make fun of myself, I can poke fun at other faculty, um, and we can get plenty, plenty out of that without having to um, put students, residents, or patients in that position. Yeah, and I, I hope that the, you know, the residents, um, I, I, I hope that most people have had this experience, but I can say one of the best parts of residency was the, the fun and the humor and the, 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 the comedy that we shared with one another. Right. As colleagues. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, great. I completely agree. Um, so the next one is make the time to be with your family and friends, 
you're not as important as your colleagues suggest. Yes. So, so tell me, yeah, what does that mean? Yeah. Uh, in terms of finding balance, it, it's, I think it's important for essentially all of us to take care of the other aspects of our lives outside of the hospital. And uh, depending on your circumstances, that may be a, uh, a partner, a lifelong partner or, a, a, you know, a set of friends, uh, children if you have them. And it's really important to make them a priority. And one of the challenges that I think most of us experience in the academic setting is being called upon to do additional, additional work. Uh, things beyond just our, our regular job description. And, and that gets into, you know, the difficulty of saying no, you know, when, when you're asked to do something beyond what you really feel comfortable doing. And, that, and, it, ru- and it runs into a conflict with what it is that you want to do in terms of time with your f- family and friends. And, you know, the, the, the little vignette that I remember so well that r- really, I think, helped lead me in this direction uh, is a phone call I got when I was, a, I think I was like a second year assistant professor here at UCSF. And I got a call from the, the chairman's assistant. Her name was Dee. And, uh, you know, I picked up the phone and Dee said something like, uh, uh, hey, Dan, you know, Dr. Fishman uh, would like to see if you'd be willing to join a, a small group of faculty to go out to dinner next week with our uh, visiting professor. You know, it would be dinner probably sometime, you know, starting about seven o'clock and be a lovely evening. And, and as she started saying this, you know, I, I was listening on the phone, but t- silently to myself, I was saying, no, 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 I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. And so she was talking and talking. And finally, she said, you know, so uh, what do you think? Can you make it? And I, I, I paused for a second. And, and then I just said, you know, D, you know, as you know, you know, my wife and I, we just had our second child, uh, Stefan. And, you know, it's really important for me to be at home. You know, I want to be there uh, in the evenings. And then there was this longer pause. And I remember seeing, you know, the visual in my mind was MD with wings flying away. (laughs) (laughs) And I didn't know what was going to happen. And she then said, you know, Dan, that is so nice. I totally understand. I'm sure I can find someone else. Yeah. And boom. And and the other thing is she never called me again. (laughs) So. Uh, you know, I think everyone listening has heard, you know, the discussion about how important it is to to, to be able to say no. Yeah. But for me, that was one of the early lessons. And I can honestly say that that decision, uh, that response never harmed my academic career. <laughs> right. Well, and I think that's really important. I, I think about that a lot in that story uh, that, you know, because I think the fear, obviously, for people in, in that early assistant professor time is if I say no, it's going to hurt my chances of ever, you know, it, it go climbing up the ladder and advancing in my career. Obviously, you have done both. You've protected that time for your family to the extent that you can. You've said no to things like that um, and yet still obviously been very successful. So I think it's really important for people to see that example and know that, you know, you don't have to say yes to everything if, uh, to be successful in your career. Right. And uh, now, on the other hand, Jed, I don't want to minimize the, 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 the difficulty is of being able to create that balance between, yeah. you know, our work and our family and so forth. Uh, you know, back, back to the first aphorism, you know, a life of service demands working really, really hard. Yeah. And I think I think uh, I, there aren't too many people that I've met in academia who have, have been very successful and 
you know, also have paid attention to the other aspects of their life who have said, oh, it's been really easy. Right. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think that's exactly right. And I struggle with it all the time, but it's nice to have um, examples on, on the on the side of people who have, have, to some extent at least, found some balance. The other thing that I, I love that you've said before is, that, uh, you know, when you feed, someone calls you the chair or whoever it is and, you know, you feel like, oh, my goodness, you know, I, I mean, they what an honor. You know, they're calling me to ask me, how can I say no? Chances are you're about the third or fourth person that they've called <laughs> and there's three or four more after you. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And and you know that because because I've mentioned that I've been the person making those calls, making the requests. And I know that I have a list and, you know, with, you know, OK, we'll pause. He can't do it. All right. Yeah. Who, who, who's number who's number four on the <laughs> right, list? Right, right, right. Exactly. And I think that's important. The, the, disappoint, the disappointment is incredibly short lived on my part. <laughs> right, right, right. Important to keep that perspective, too. Um, all right. Great. So the next one is be prepared for the inevitable storms. Deepen your spiritual anchors. Talk about that one a little. Yeah, this one's this one's a, a, a really serious one. Um because it it gets into uh, a fact uh, of of life, which I think I think everyone will recognize, but I I don't know if we pay sufficient attention to it, and that is that an uh, an absolute aspect of the experience of life is to encounter suffering. And I don't mean the suffering that we that we observe in the patient that we serve. I mean the suffering that we are going to experience. And I'm I'm sure that there's not a person listening right now who uh, cannot uh, describe uh, the significant suffering that they've already been through. And whether that's the, that's one's own illness or the illness of a loved one or uh, you know a distant tragedy, um, a, a, a lost best friend, uh, you know, a, a loving grandfather who's passed away. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And um, in, in my lifetime, I've had, you know, my own experience of significant suffering. And um, I've found that an essential part of my own recovery from the things that I've encountered has been my spiritual practice. And there's, there's a reason why the great sages tell us that we should take care of our spiritual self. And it's not primarily be, uh, for when things are going really well. Right. Right. It's meant for when life gets challenging. And so uh, just to reveal you know, to the listeners, my own um, background. I, I was raised as a as as a, a Jew. I am Jewish, um, but I've been drawn to the teaching of the Buddha. And um, uh, as as many probably know, I mean, the story of the Buddha really is centered on the the existence of suffering in the world and the fact that when he was a young child, he was protected from the, the realities of life by his parents keeping him in the palace. But he eventually was uh, motivated to have to leave. And as soon as he left, he immediately came across, you know, hunger and illness and death. And this became, this was this huge revelation to him. And then he then 
lived the rest of his life uh, pursuing the path of trying to understand the nature of suffering and how to you know eventually overcome it and become enlightened and the starting point for that is to truly recognize that an inevitable aspect of, of, of life is suffering and as you know I've, 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 I've felt for a long time that one of the hidden gems of being in the world of the healer's art is that from the very beginning we have the opportunity as young people to be exposed to this truth in the form of the patients that we see each and every day and at some point I think all of us get to the realization when we're looking at you know the 29 year old woman with uh, uh, in coma with subarachnoid hemorrhage in the intensive care unit who is going to die because of the extent of her subarachnoid hemorrhage and she you know she went from being this you know uh, you know uh, a live successful uh, you know on the path to greatness person and you realize that's me lying in that intensive care bed. That's me. Um, and that the, you know, it's the thinnest of veils that, that separate us from the suffering in our patients. And, and actually, it's an ephemeral veil. It doesn't actually exist. And that the only difference between that patient and me is my current good fortune. Yeah. And so, so um, my own spiritual practice uh, has taught me that uh, because suffering is an inevitable part of this experience, that when these things happen, um, I'm not burdened, for example, by the question, why did this have to happen to me? And, and, and all of us, again, as healers, have seen this in, in the patients and the families that we've encountered, where part of their suffering is, is, is just dealing with that question, why did, why did this have to happen? Why did God do this to me or to my, to my loved one? And so I just use that as just one concrete example of how a, a spiritual belief or practice can help lessen the suffering that exists in life. Yeah, and and I think uh, completely agree. And, and the key being to kind of preemptively deepen those anchors rather than re- reactively when something happens, trying to scramble to kind of deal with it. You're preparing yourself, knowing that it's it's there and not far away. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's really hard. I I remember thinking about medical school as being, uh, you know, treading water spiritually, right? Barely. Yeah. Uh, but, but my advice to everyone is to really try to pay attention to whatever, whatever spiritual aspect of life is that brings meaning to you and, and, and take the time, do the reading, uh, share the practice with others to the extent possible. Yeah. Fantastic. All right. And then the last one is feel nervous when you are not leaping from boundaries Enjoy the fall when you do. So tell yeah, me about so, that. Yeah. Yeah. So th- this kind of comes back to the creativity uh, aphorism, which is uh, in in our work again, especially in academia, um, we're we're meant to be on the edge to a certain degree. Uh, if if you're feeling like totally in the comfort zone and everything's cool and I've got everything under control and wow, this is a lot easier than I thought it was going to be. I just need to keep it on cruise and I'm going to be fine. Uh, I, I just, again, check myself um, because we should be on the edge uh, in terms of trying to change the world and making it a better place. And um, what comes with that is just, you know, the inevitable falls 
and um, we all have to learn how to uh, 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 put up with those um, those, those uh, trajectories and and once we hit the ground, picking ourselves up and getting right back on the wall. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I still remember uh, when I went to look at UCSF for medical school. I had never been to San Francisco, had never spent any time on the West Coast. And uh, I kind of wasn't even going to go. And then, you know, I had decided, well, I'll just, why not? I'll take the opportunity to go and and see this new city. And not thinking in a million years I would actually make that decision to to attend medical school so far away from home. And I remember, I don't know if you know Anda Kuo. She she was on faculty, Mm -hmm. maybe still is. Um, Mm -hmm. And my parents knew her, and so they had gotten us together. We were walking on Parnassus Avenue just talking, and I was telling her that, you know, I I was kind of thinking I'd probably stay closer to home. And I remember her saying exactly that kind of a thing to me. She said, you know, this is way out of your comfort zone. If you take this, if you take this leap and you, and you get yourself out here, out of this comfort zone, you're going to really find a lot of benefits from it. And that really stuck with me and was one of the things, I think, in the end that made me decide to go. And, of course, I wouldn't have changed it for anything in the world. So, you know, I think pushing yourself uh, can, can often have a lot of benefits. Yeah, I actually, I appreciate you bringing up that perspective because I was framing it mostly in kind of the creative creative contributions in academia, but I totally agree. I mean, this really applies more generally to, you know, the, the opportunities that we have in life and, and uh, you know, taking risk. And I think you know this, Dave. I think I, I really i am a believer in adventure, Yep. Um, I, but I have a definition for adventure, you know, and I mean adventure with a capital A, right? Not just, oh, I think I might move into a new apartment, but you know, the kinds of things that you thought about, like, you know, where should I go for my training next? Yeah. And my definition, my definition for adventure with a capital A is that it's got to feel like a spectacular opportunity for failure. <laughs> That's right. Right. So deep down inside, you're thinking, oh, man, this could really be a bad thing to do. But of course, you don't go into an adventure certain that you're going to fail. That's my definition of a fool. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I love yeah. that. Well, all right, Dan. So those are the aphorisms. And then the, the uh, final part of your talk, you talked a little about a book called The Three Marriages, Reimagining Work, Self, and Relationships. Um, and so I thought that was really interesting. I would love to hear hear a little more. And I'm sure our listeners would love to hear about that book and why that has played a role in your life and in the work you do. Yeah. So th- this is just in the last few minutes of our of our get together. I'm happy to describe this. So this is this is a book by uh, uh, an author named David White, W-H-Y-T-E called The Three Marriages. And I came across this because I, I saw another one of David White's books on the coffee table of my best friend, Tim, who lives in, in Sandwich, New Hampshire. And I was reading that book and I was really drawn into the, the, the thinking that uh, White uh, put to the pages. I didn't particularly like the writing style, but um, I was drawn into his ideas. And so then I found this book on Amazon and got it. And it really is in my sort of uh, top three books of all time now, I think. Um, and, uh, so I highly recommend it to everybody, but I can describe the, the, the main thesis of the book pretty easily. And yeah. that is that, that white suggests that, uh, all of us as human beings are essentially designed to, uh, uh, encounter or, or be part of three marriages. The first marriage is the one that that we all know and, and what the word really uh, generally means. And that is, you know, the marriage to another soul, another partner, you know, whether that's in a formal marriage or otherwise, we, we seek, uh, other individuals, especially one individual that we will have a, a long-term relationship in the form of, of, of love. Um, and, 
Um, it's important. It's, it's, it's part of what makes us tick. Um, and interestingly, it's optional. I mean, many people pursue it, but one can go through life without it, yep. but it has its place. The second marriage is our, our connection or our relationship to our sense of purpose in life. And, you know, what is it that I want to do with this, you know, brief existence on the planet? And I, I think it's really important to call that out because that's quite separate from the marriage to, you know, another soul. And I think most of us should admit that we are really, really motivated to do something with this existence that I have. And I really like the way White frames this as a marriage. Um, he's not saying that it's necessarily equal to the first marriage, but it is a part of our life. And by putting it that way, it removes that dichotomy that we talked about before of work-life balance. Um, because this is saying that this, this relationship to my sense of purpose or calling is really, really important. It's part of life. And so I prefer all of us to talk about life balance rather than work-life balance. Um, so that's the second marriage. And interestingly, the second marriage, it's also optional. I mean, I don't recommend that. Right. I, I think it, it'd be pretty sad to go through your entire life. And then if you have the opportunity to look back, say, you know, I really didn't do much with, with these whatever number of years. Right. So it's, not, it's definitely not a, a good strategy. Um, but it is, it's not required. And then finally, the third marriage, which is the one that really is the most mysterious, but in some ways, I think the most important, and that is the marriage to ourself. You know, the relationship that we have with this singular being inside ourselves. Um, and I think I've expressed this to you in a similar way. You know, I don't know about you, but I walk around and, you know, when I'm thinking to myself, the conversation may have elements of, um, all right, Dan, so, you know, what are we going to be doing today? And, and, you know, who am I? And, you know, what am I? And how do I feel about my, myself? Um, and I think going to what, again, what the, what the, the sages have written in many different forms, I think, I, I mean, ultimately a place that we want to be able to get to in this, in this third relationship or marriage to self is to be able to say, um, is to be able to have a sense of love for who we are. Um, and, uh, importantly, this marriage is not optional. Yeah. Um, you can be in denial your entire life, which I also, I don't think is a very good strategy because at the end of it all, you know, I think it, it would be much better to be considering who we are throughout our life rather than waiting to the end. But I think White would suggest that, and I agree, that it's the most foundational marriage. And the more that we can, if you will, be successful in the nature of that relationship with self, um, the better the other marriages in life will be. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And in, in fact, some of um, one of my favorite um, writers and poets is Rainer Maria Rilke. And some of his work is exactly that, that until you develop that relationship with yourself, you're not going to be successful in any other relationship. Um, and he talks more about relationships with others, but I, I would imagine it's true at work, too. Until you really know uh, yourself well, you're not going to be able to fully embrace what you need and want, both in a marriage-type relationship and in a work relationship. Yes, and, and of course, because of how hard this work is and how serious the work is that we do uh, and, the, and the struggle to try to find that balance, we tend to put most of our energy 
into our family and loved ones and our and our work. And we, I think, too often leave this third relationship um, uh, un, unfulfilled and unexamined. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's something we, we all need to pay more attention to. Well, Dan, thank you so much. This is wonderful. I think it'll be really useful and interesting to our listeners. And I really appreciate, appreciate you taking the time to come on and do it. And, and likewise, Jed, I, I, I greatly enjoy our friendship. And um, thank you so much for uh, the opportunity to share these ideas with you. Thanks so much, Dan. All right. That's it for today. That was, I think, just some really great advice uh, from someone who's been incredibly successful on how to keep things balanced, how to remain healthy and be successful. A lot of really important things to keep in mind. Let us know what you think. What are your tips and tricks for your success and for staying healthy in your own career and in life? Leave comments at ACRAC.com. That's A-C-C-R-A-C.com. Everyone can see your comments. We can all learn from what you have to say as well. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating. Even if you already have, you can do it again, and it really helps others find the show. If you're interested in supporting the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it really makes a difference, and we really appreciate it. If you prefer not to make a recurring pledge and you just want to make a one-time payment or several one-time payments whenever you decide, you can go to paypal.me slash ACRAC. That's paypal.me slash A-C-C-R-A-C, and you can make any donation that you want that way, too. Again, greatly appreciated. Thank you so much to those who are already patrons or have given a donation. And, of course, big thank you, as always, to Brian Park for doing some great outlines on some of the episodes that you'll see pop up in the show notes. All right, that's it for today. Thanks for listening. For the ACRAG Podcast and Dr. Dan Lowenstein, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember... What you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.